0: The Cane Ridge Revival took place in the month of August in 1801. It was known as the largest, most famous camp meeting of the Second Great Awakening. Think a religious Woodstock. Close to 20,000 people showed up on the plains of Kentucky from several different states around. They were Methodists. They were Presbyterians. They were Baptists. They were from all different stripes of people that came together and said, can we put our differences aside? Can we truly live into the unity that Christ preached preached about and and the the blessings and, and the challenge that he gave on the night of his betrayal to be unified? And so that was the rallying cry. And so out of this event, this was the Genesis of what came to be known as the Stone-Campbell Restoration Movement. And it focused on removing creeds and dogmas and and all these different things that divided believers and said, let's just use the Bible. And so it wasn't just Barton W. Stone and Alexander and Thomas Campbell, but other legendary preachers like Elias Smith and and Walter Scott and Raccoon John Smith and James O'Kelly. And other noted preachers, Clara Hale Babcock, Sarah Lou Bostich, Ellen Grant Gustin, Bertha Mason Fuller, Emmy B. Frank, Mary Stocksall, and Jesse Coleman Monser could keep going on and on. And long before the Presbyterians or the Luthers or the Episcopalians, the Stone-Campbell tradition was ordaining and using women to preach and lead and serve in a variety of different tasks. That's our roots. What happened? According to Doug Foster, out at Abilene Christian, who wrote the encyclopedia of the Stone-Campbell movement, he said it was the fundamentalist movement, led by David Lipscomb and others. They began writing articles in the Gospel Advocate arguing that women choosing to disobey Paul's command to remain silent in 1 Corinthians 14 would be eternally damned. Lipscomb's words were paired with fundamentalist periodicals that glorified the domestic sphere and the domestic roles for women to lean into and mandated that women remain silent in the church. At the time that this controversy broke out, in the Stone-Campbell movement, over 60% of the missionaries, two-thirds of the members of the missionary societies, and over 90% of the Sunday morning Bible class teachers were women. Six years later, the Church of Christ officially split away from the Restoration Movement. The U.S. government Census Bureau called and, and talked to David Lipscomb, and he said, yes, let's make it official. We're our own entity now. And so the question that we have to ask is, did we get it right? Were we right in limiting what women could do in and for the church? I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 14 and really get into this passage and see what it was that was worth dividing this movement that was bringing so many together. 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26, says this. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a a, a tongue or an interpretation. Well, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone, any of you, speak in a tongue, two or, or most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, well, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And and if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, well, the first speaker should stop. For all of you can prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So what's going on at the church of Corinth? Well, if you've been here over the past nine weeks, you know, you name it, it's going on in Corinth. You've got folks that are showing up, living such detestable, sinful lives. You've got a guy that's sleeping with his stepmom. You've got people coming together to take communion. The the thing that's supposed to remind them of their common conviction in Jesus Christ. And you've got those that can afford it. They're coming with lavish feasts and are eating and are drinking and have a good time. And, And the day laborers are coming in. There's no food for them. There's no drink, and they're like, how is this supposed to be uniting? And so the Lord has given them gifts to to build up and encourage the body to edify it and to remind them of what they have in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, yes, you've got gifts, and that's great, but you're not using them in a way that's bringing about unity among the believers. And those on the outside are looking in as well. And so in chapter 12, we, we talked about how Paul says, apparently, you guys think that, boy, speaking in tongues is way up here, and everything else falls in after that. And, and if you aren't blessed with this spiritual language to be able to do that, you must just be a second-class Christian. And Paul says, no. In fact, if you're going to ask me, put tongues at the very bottom. I'd rather you just speak a handful of words that come from God and prophesy than to speak in tongues. And everything else fills in in between. And so he reminds them in chapter 13 of what this thing is all about. It's about love. And all these divisions. And you say, I go after Apollos. Well, I go after Paul. Well, we just love Jesus. All those divisions and all these things that are dividing this church of Jews and Gentiles. Of people that have understood the law over here and those that don't. He said it's supposed to be love. The love that you have from Jesus Christ that's supposed to cover over all those things. See, of all of the 600 plus laws, Jesus willed it down to love God and, and love your neighbor. But on the night of his betrayal, he's like, let's just give you one. Just love others as you've seen me love others. You do what you've seen me do. And so they're not living into that. And so now Paul continues this idea of utilizing gifts in chapter 14 and verse 5. He said, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Okay, then verse 26 to 33 Paul is going to go in and he's going to address some problems that are, are causing some disunity within the service. And he, when, the, when the Corinthians were gathering, the brothers and sisters, Paul tells them, he says, I get it. You're showing up. You've all got a song you want to sing. You got a hymn that God put on your heart? You've got a revelation that God has given. Or maybe you've got a tongue, and it's it's just welling up in you. So each of you have come wanting to contribute to what's happening with the body. So that's great, but let's do it in a way that honors God. Because right now, these revelations from God and tongues, it's just a hot mess. You guys are speaking over each other and and it's just contributing to this chaos and you're interrupting one another. He goes, this isn't a school board meeting. Come on, let's get on the same page. Let's make sure that we're doing it in a way that brings glory to God. And so what Paul's going to do is unpack this passage and he's going to address each of the offending parties that are contributing to this chaos that they call worship. Who's first on his list? The tongue speakers. He says, okay, if you want to be a tongue speaker, that's great. But if you don't have an interpreter, Okay, so that's the occasion. That's the problem. You're over here just having your, your own little private worship service, and you're blurting out all these things. People are like, what's he saying? I don't know. What's she doing? Over- I don't know. So if you don't have an interpreter, he says, be silent. Zip it. Have a great time with God later or to yourself, but let's not just have this tongue speaking just going on as, as kind of a babble that's just in the background. Because don't do that, and you know what? We will recognize that this is a gift, and the Holy Spirit has put this upon you. That's great. So if you've got an interpreter, line up. We'll take the first two, okay, three if we have to, and we'll get this in at the first part of worship. And as we're all coming together and sharing together, that's number one. Who's the second group? He talks with the prophets in verse twenty nine. He says, okay, you've come, and you've had this awesome experience with the Lord, and he's put a word on your heart. So you come to the church and go, I I want to prophesy and, and share what God is doing. We're like, okay, during the common time, you're one of the first two. Okay, three, we'll put you guys up there. Now, while you're sharing, if someone raises their hand, and you just tell, it's a Holy Spirit moment, and they're like, I've got to share. Well, then the person that is that has the floor can yield the floor and say, okay, th- this seems to be hot off the press. You come on up and take my spot. I'll go and sit down. I don't want you just, well, God's telling me, and well, God's telling me. No, 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 no. That's not how it's going to go. And, and so if you're going to release the floor, then you need to be silent. And once again, two or three are going to be able to be a part of this. And so the goal is for the church to be edified, to be built up, to be encouraged. Why did they need to do this? Is it just so church you get more out of it? Well, Paul tells us there's two reasons why this worship assembly needs to be set up in this way. He says verse 3 is, okay, we kind of get each other. Oh, Brother Stone's always a little crazy. Oh, she's definitely crazy. You know. We, but, hey, we love them. They're brothers and sisters. We understand, and we kind of get what's happening. After you learn the culture of a church, but you got to realize there's outsiders. If you're out in a courtyard and people are walking past, and they're hearing all this craziness going on, going, What's going on? These people are nuts. If that's what following Jesus is, oh, <laughs> I want nothing to do with that. So Paul says, you're not only recipients of the gospel message, you're also guardians. And how we worship matters for people to be able to receive the gospel message. It needs to be a reflection of what the kingdom of God is all about. And if it's this hot mess, people are going to say, I'm passing. I'm moving on from that. So, Paul says, be cognizant of what it looks like for an outsider to come in our midst and see how we're doing worship. Number two, he says in verse three, it matters to God how we worship. And God's not a God of disorder, but of peace. We'll go back and read Genesis 1, the creation account. You've got just masses of stuff kind of floating around and this, that, and the other. And God arranges things and divides the light from the darkness. The sky, you know, from the sea and the sea from the land and the animal. So he does all these things to create order. It's not chaos. Chaos is what's out there in the world. We gather together in worship. Isn't it kind of a time we start a week and we reset ourselves in the midst of chaos? What Paul is saying is, when you gather together, it shouldn't be more chaotic than the world you're trying to escape for a moment to remind ourselves of our God. He goes, no, if God, our Heavenly Father, is a God of order, that should be the reason why we should be doing things in a way that brings honor to Him, but also paints an accurate picture of our orderly heavenly father. Now, within the church of Christ, sometimes we have have kind of tilted to the extreme on that. We want nothing to do with people are not gonna describe us as Pentecostal, right? Okay. So we we're we're gonna pinch them swing as far away over here. But in reality, God is also a God who sent his spirit, and his spirit is gonna manifest itself that God is truly among us. Okay. Grab your proverbial, uh, let's get it, going. the seatbelt, lock yourselves in. You might need the five-point harness for this morning. Verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 34. Women. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, should ask their husbands at home. For it's a disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Are are you the only people it's reached? If, If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues for each one of you, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I'm going to invite John Herzog and Ryan Newhouse to come up to join me on stage for a little bit of a discussion, because I think sometimes when we get into some of these passages, there's a real tendency to kind of maybe look at things differently, and so I've asked these two guys to come on over here. Ryan, you want to slide to the middle? And I want us to kind of look and and have a conversation because I'll have to tell you, even Peter says, I have a hard time figuring out Paul. So uh, I I want us all to just kind of look at this together. And uh, let's start with the prayer. Lord, I just ask that you be in our midst. that Lord, you help us to unravel some very important teachings, but some very confusing teachings. And I just pray... That your spirit will guide us that it'll be your words and not ours in christ's name amen so on the surface on face value it appears that paul is given a blanket prohibition of women in the sunday <clears throat> gatherings of jesus followers so there to remain silent and never speak at all so john you're kind of our primary teaching shepherd uh, it's not that the other guys don't teach but you you seem to have that gift and ryan uh, I hate to use this term, but you're our primary lay teacher in that people enjoy and recognize you're, you're gifting and teaching. We thank you for that. So guys, we, we studied in chapter 11 uh, that Paul gives instructions for how women are to pray and prophesy in the assembly. And so we've got some work to do because now it seems he's uh, either calling a timeout or he's unraveling. Somehow we've got to reconcile what we studied about in chapter 11 with chapter 14 to bring some sense, because that will then play into how we operate as a congregation. So, uh, John, let me start with you. Who was Paul seem to be addressing when he talks about women being silent within the churches?
1: Uh, I'm going to try and be real brief, because after I substituted for you, I got accused of using up all of your rollover minutes. So
0: There you go. Uh,
1: I think we do have to go back to chapter 11, where we began, and where he addresses every woman who prophesies or prays with her head uncovered. And this covering, at least to me, has to do with with a, a cultural sign of authority, that that she was not to be an independent authority in and of herself that she fell under the authority of the leadership of that church and that, that, that there was an authority or a covering over her. And I think that, the, and I hate to get into Greek stuff, but he uses the word kafali for head, which is a physical head. He specifically does not use authoritative language here. And I, and I think if you, uh, Ryan taught on the body of Christ this morning in his Sunday school class. If you didn't watch it, you should. And the body goes where the head takes it. And so, I I think what he's saying here is is women are not setting theology or are not leading in that theology, but they certainly were participating in that theology. They were certainly contributing to it. So by the time we get to chapter 14, I have to conclude that that Paul has either changed his mind, Mm -hmm. and women are to now be totally silent. They can no longer pray or prophesy, or 14 means something different than we've traditionally thought it meant. And so when we get to 14, and and it starts in verse 26, the the problem we keep running into is this language barrier between the Greek and the English, because I have a King James, I mean, excuse me, an NIV here that was copyrighted in 1982. And verse 26 starts out, brothers, masculine. Right. The new NIV, if you've bought one since mine, starts out, brothers and sisters. I looked at tons of different Versions, if you will, of Scripture, and it goes to brethren, brothers, and sisters. That brothers was not the correct.
0: Yeah, kind of, word there. Kind of our equivalent of saying, "Come on, guys, let, let's go." Yeah, if so. we
1: say guys, we include the women, and you know, come on, guys, let's all. So anyway, the the correct rendering of that would have been the brethren, those that were assembled there. So those kinds of things, even in verse 6 where he's introducing this whole section to the church, he's using the term brethren, not brothers. So those are the kind of things that get us in trouble. Now if I get down to verse 34 and 35, one of the words there that we may have difficulty with is, he addressing women or is he addressing wives? because those word, that word is interchangeable in the Greek. Sometimes it's talking about a wife, sometimes it's talking about... So, you know, I can almost envision if they were in a uh, a synagogue-type setting with the women on one side and the men on the other side, some wife over here yelling over to her husband, what was Brad talking about? You know, and this thing becomes totally disruptive, and so they're, he's they're saying... That might be
0: my wife. Ask, yeah, yeah, <laughs> ask
1: your wife at home. You know, I mean, ask your husband at home. Excuse me. So... Paul is instructing in a proper way to pray and prophesy, not prohibiting it. And then beyond the the formal setting of praying and prophesying, this, this disruption that's happening in the assembly, he's saying, hush, stop it, be silent, in the same way that he told those other people to be silent. The first two groups you talked about, he told them to be silent. And now and, and he's telling these women who are being disruptive, typically I think he means these wives who are being disruptive, to be silent, to go ask yeah, those the, questions at home.
0: Yeah, and the, the context clues tells us because each of you have a husband, you can go and sort out these things. So, Ryan, let me let me pivot to you for just well, a Well, let second. me add oh, one last thing, Brad,
1: and because the word churches in here is important to me because I went and, and did some work on that this week. And church there is that common one that we all know, ecclesia, the called out, the saved, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so my alternative to this that I just said, because I grew up in in a tradition of women not participating in in the assembly. So if I take the conservative approach to 14, 34, and 35, I have to come to the conclusion that in the churches, is how he says that, not in the assembly, but in the churches, women are to be silent well, then, if I'm going to take it that way, if I'm going to take it literally, all women for all time universally are to be silent in the churches, then we've got to see some things that we're doing right now. We've got to stop women speaking in Sunday school. We've got to stop women speaking in small groups. We've got to stop women speaking in family devotionals where an adult son might be present. We've got to stop women from making any announcements like we did this morning. We've got to stop women from even speaking in the lobbies because the church is assembled. And if women are to be silent in the churches literally, then we've got to regress a lot of things that we've allowed to progress, if you will, in all of our assemblies.
0: Yeah, and so the basic idea is that if you use these passages, and uh, hopefully uh, after the first year we'll get into a larger study where we hit uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that if you use these two passages to really address what's going on, and to shape what's going on, you have to go, kind of go whole hog, is what you're saying. It's
1: the old, if you're going to require circum, you know, obedience to the law, then you've got to go all the way into circumcision and everything. In other words, right. He's. I think he's got to be addressing something that's going on in, in Corinth, and in Timothy. I think he's addressing things that are going on in Ephesus. But if we go universal for all time, for all women, that you must be silent anytime the church is assembled, then we have to mean it. If we're right. going to go there, yep. we've got to be serious about it.
0: Okay, so Ryan, let, let me pivot to you. Uh, what speech do you think he's prohibiting here? Because John kind of brings up a good point. I mean, is it talking about prophecy? Is it talking about prayer? I mean, What, what do you think that Paul was addressing to these wives um, that he wants to have them silence?
2: I think—let me say a, a, a couple of things before, sure. before I answer your question. Yep. Uh, number one, I think that as a believer in Christ, I and I believe all of us want to be faithful to Scripture.
0: Absolutely. And so we
2: can't be afraid to study the text. Yep. And—, and and if we have different opinions about it, that, that's fine, right. you know, uh, but let's sit down and, and let's study, number one. And so I think, let me, let me make a general overall statement, okay. I think, and then I will try and answer your question. I think many people who take verses 34 and 35 as a universal principle that applies to all women at all times in all churches At the very same time, many people, especially in our fellowship, would deny the validity of speaking in tongues and prophesying, which is the very context in which they are written. And so many evangelical churches prohibit women from speaking based on verses 34 and 35. But at the very same time, they say that speaking in tongues and prophesying are relegated to the first century, yeah, while so it's no longer verses relevant. 34 and 35 are applicable to the present. And so this seems a little bit inconsistent to me. And so how do we make sense of the text? Well, I think as you pointed out, uh, Paul is dealing with disorder in the worship service in chapter 14. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to correct some of the things that are going on, and he talks to three different groups that are involved in some type of verbal misconduct, Mm -hmm. as you pointed out, the tongue speakers, the prophesiers, and then the women, or uh, as John said, I, I think he's referring to wives there. Um, and, and I use this example, my, my in-laws are here and we were talking about this yesterday and I pointed this out, that in Spanish, the word mujer can be translated as a general term for a woman, but it can also be used as a wife. Uh, it, it sounds kind of weird in English, you know, if I could say, this is my woman, you know, that, that just sounds very bad, but, but in Spanish, it's perfectly fine to say that. Mm-hmm. And so the Greek term also there can be translated as a woman or as a wife. And in chapter 11, I think it should be translated as woman. And I can, I'm not going to go into why at this point, but in chapter 14, I think that it should be translated as wife because of what he says immediately after. Uh, The context there is, and and granted, it could be translated either way, but I think the context in, in verse 35 is what he says. Um... He says, if anyone wants to learn anything, speaking to the the women there, let them ask their own husband at home. Therefore, I think the word should be translated as wives in in verse 34. Some of the Corinthian women were involved in some type of verbal misconduct. And so what is that to answer your question? Well, number one is not clear. Uh, what type of verbal misconduct they they were involved in, and there have been several suggestions. Um, I think, not to get too technical, but I think it involves some type of speaking out in the assembly and asking verbal questions and piping up and interrupting the service, because that's what he is trying to correct. Right. This disorder and kind of chaos that is going on in the service. And I think that there were some Corinthian women who were piping up in the service and asking question after question and creating confusion and, and disorder. And I, can, I was thinking about this this morning. I, I, was, um, I served as kind of like a missionary intern in, in Brazil mm-hmm. one time. And so there were certain non-Christians that were present in our worship assemblies. And I specifically remember one of the missionaries was preaching one time, and one of the ladies of the congregation who was not a Christian, but she was visiting, she just started asking him questions in, in the middle of the sermon and was kind of interrupting him. And so that's kind of the idea that I have of what's going on in in this context. Paul is concerned with correcting some disorder that is going on in the Corinthian assembly. And so he addresses the tongue speakers, he addresses the prophesiers, and then he addresses, in my opinion, the Corinthian wives that were interrupting the worship service. And he says, you need to stop talking and interrupting in this way. And if you have questions, you can ask your, your um, husbands at home.
0: Yeah, let's go and get our next slide because it, it does seem to follow the same pattern that uh, it, it, the occasion was disrespectful or disorderly speech, he tells them to be silent. And by the way, be silent is the same word in all three occasions. And then what's the adjustment or the solution? Well, ask it at home. And I, I think as teachers, you have a certain amount of material that you want to cover during a class time. And if you've had someone that keeps peppering you with questions, you know, it's not uncommon for you to say, oh, oh, hang on just a second. How about you and I get together offline? Because we've got something that the rest of the group wants to address. So, but Paul brings about this word disgrace. Um, and he says, you know, let's not bring about disgrace in how you um, are uh, this continuous speaking. It, the, in fact, the, the verb in Greek is a present infinitive, it's ongoing, peppering with questions. But Paul brings in the word disgrace. What do you guys think about that? Uh, What was happening with these wives that Paul is trying to address, and how is this person or this group of people bringing about this disrespect or this disgrace?
1: I think it goes back to, if you read it as wives, it's very disrespectful to their husband that they can't get these answers at home, that there is a head to the household, and, and that that is the proper place to address these questions, or as you say, at least offline, not out from under, again, I go back to 11, where, where this symbol of authority that women were to wear on their head, whatever that was, whether it was their hair or a covering, and I don't know which, quite frankly, but that, that they were going places that the head did not want to go, yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. is the best way I can describe it.
0: Okay, so um, Paul also brings in the law. And if you go through the Jewish Torah, it really doesn't address women being submissive to men, but rather uh, submissive to kind of the principle of order. So, and I I mentioned earlier, you know, Genesis chapter 1, where God brings about order from the chaos. But whatever these women were doing, it, it was a major disruption. So if There was a time of sharing at the beginning, and now they're getting into the main part of the worship, and it's still this back and forth. Um, Then they're being asked to submit themselves to this. So final question, do you believe the women participated in the worship in the New Testament churches? And if so, do you believe it was Paul's intent in this passage to kind of, hey, we've tried it for a while. Now it's time to shut it down. What do you think, John?
1: Well, I think... Too, and you mentioned the old covenant that we think that you know, under the Jewish pattern of worship that women didn't participate at all, that they were excluded. But if you go to any of the ceremonies, in every single one, a woman begins the ceremony, but she also always does so the head cover. covered. Yep. And, and so under the authority of the male leadership, if you will. So the way I look at it is, is Paul is directing them how to participate and when they can participate not that they cannot ever participate. Right. So if, if the eldership of this body feels that a woman has a contribution to make to the edification of this body, she would be doing so under authority. Right. <laughs> and so I think... The, the admonition here is against taking independent authority, that, that I am an authority in and of myself, and I have a right to say right. anything that I want to say in the churches. I don't think any of us have that right. Had the men been doing what the women were doing, I think sure. he'd have told the men to hush, you know, yeah. and be silent.
0: So yeah, Of course, Jesus, when he's talking about authority, is like, let me demonstrate what my authority looks like when you go to a banquet, sit at the end of the table, Yeah. Uh, go, go pick up the basin of water and that type of well, thing. When
1: he, when he tells women to submit to their husbands, he also tells the husbands to love them like Christ loved the church and give himself up for them. So uh, I think we have to offer our women an opportunity to share their witness yep. and, uh, and, and to silence that witness is to give up something that I think would be very beneficial and edifying to the body.
0: Yeah, and as brothers and sisters, we're all called to submit to one another. So what, what do you think, Ryan? Because, I mean, this is kind of an important thing for us to understand. Well, I think,
2: based on certain evidence, I think that chapter 11 is dealing with the context of a worship service. And what is interesting in that chapter is Paul criticizes the way that some of the men are behaving in the worship service, and he also criticizes the way that some of the women are praying and prophesying in the worship service, and he does not criticize the fact that they are praying and prophesying in the worship service. He Rather, he criticizes the manner in which they are. Right. And so I read the text in chapter 11 and chapter 14 that there are some similarities. In both instances, Paul is criticizing the manner in which some of the women are behaving. In chapter 11, it's the fact that they are praying and prophesying in the context of a worship service with their heads uncovered. And in chapter 14, he is criticizing the manner in which they are piping up in the middle of the worship service and causing disorder and chaos.
0: And presumably also uh, prophesying and speaking in tongues, that wasn't just a male only thing.
2: Correct, So, Uh, in my opinion. And, And so to answer your question, I think that there is fairly strong evidence that chapter 11 is in the context of a worship service, which I don't necessarily have time to get into right now, but uh, I can at some other point uh, if you are interested. But I think he presumes that the women are praying and prophesying. And if he had a problem with the manner Mm -hmm. that they were doing it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he didn't come out and just say, stop doing this, stop praying and prophesying. And in chapter 11, uh, there is a little bit of a tension there. And so it's, Yep. It's important for us to try and reconcile that. Yep.
0: Can we show these guys your appreciation? Thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. And by the way, I'm going to speak for both of you guys. We're all available if you want to talk and wrestle. I've had a few take me up on some coffee conversations. And please, we're, we're in the middle of just looking at things, and we want to look and wrestle together. But if you look at not only the context of what's happening here in the letter, but also if you look at kind of the bookends of what's happening on either side of this letter, I think it's important for us to understand what's going on. So I, I want us to look briefly at the practices of what women were actually doing on either side of this letter. So we've talked about this before at Pentecost where uh, Peter comes out and he's quoting Joel. And they're like, why is this big group of people all saying and using different tongues? And are they drunk? He goes, no, it's just 9 in the morning. But Joel said this day would come when the Holy Spirit would come. He said, God's going to pour out his, his, his spirit upon us. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Even on your servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. But we also have to look at what Paul is doing in his other letters and what's happening. Paul doesn't just sit down one day and do all of the letters. He's traveling around. And the three letters we're going to look at happen on Paul's third missionary journey. Paul writes 1 Corinthians in 57 AD approximately. And you can go to Acts chapter 19 and verse 22 to see that Paul was in Ephesus as he's writing this first letter. And he's on his third missionary journey. He hears what's going on from Chloe and her household. So he's like, oh, okay, let's write it out. You know, as soon as the ink's dry, sends it on, and it gets over there. Well, Paul continues on his missionary journey, and we see that 2 Corinthians was written in that same year as he's in Macedonia, possibly Philippi, still on the third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. Well, then Romans, his Magna Carta, was written either at the latter part of 57 or early into 58. He's still on the third missionary journey, but this time he's back in Corinth. And so these same people that he has has spoken into about what's happening, Paul's in their midst as he's writing to the church in Rome. And so Paul is writing from Corinth at the place where he supposedly has shut down all things for women. Yet in Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions Phoebe the deacon. He mentions Priscilla, the teacher of Apollos, Junia, who was either an apostle or noted among the apostles, Tryphenia, and Tryphosa, and Persidy and Julia, and many other women who were laborers that worked side by side with the apostle Paul. So if we believe what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16, many of the women if, if chapter 14 is truly prohibitive in 1 Corinthians, these ladies would not have been welcomed in the churches that Paul had set up. And so you have to wonder, the church in Corinth is like going, okay, you shut things down here, but yet what's happening over in Rome? And they understand all these ladies are doing these various things. Last stop on Paul's third missionary journey says this in Acts chapter 21, in verse 7 through 9. When they had finished the voyage from Tyre and we arrived at Palemnas and we greeted the believers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we left and came to Caesarea and we went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven original deacons that helped with the widows. This is Philip, Ethiopian eunuch, and they stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. So I'm wondering if, if Paul has written this thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, shutting down women from participating in worship in any way, what was his message to Philip? Philip, okay, uh, we kind of put some, we started for a while, wasn't really working, now we got to shut things down. And so you've got to tell your your daughters, come in from the field, stop prophesying, stop leading in this way. Because we no longer feel women should do that, and we've kind of drawn a line in the sand. Church, it's, it's not there. There's no prohibition given to Philip and his four daughters We know there were women who were leaders and teachers in the early church. And whatever Paul meant in chapter 14, it is not a blanket prohibition. Instead, Paul invites both men and women to participate in the edification of the assembly. Chapter 14 and verse 26. But then he silences disorderly behavior of both men and women in verses 27 through 35. What's our task as a church? Our task is the same as the church in Corinth. We've got to, number one, identify how are we going to connect with the outsiders that come in our midst, the outsiders in our community? What will be our message? What will be the way that we worship God that connects? And number two, how can we do that in a way that honors God? How do we do that? It starts with a conversation that we start asking ourselves, how can we allow each member of our body to utilize their gifts given by God through the power of his Holy Spirit in a way that brings honor to him and builds up the body of believers here? Florence Nightingale was an English social reformer. She was also a statistician. I had no idea. thought that was cool. But she's also the founder of modern nursing. Where would nursing be without the example of Florence Nightingale? For those of you who don't know, she served and trained other nurses during the Crimean War in Constantinople. She was known as the Lady of the Lamp. And that when all the other nurses had gone to sleep, there was Florence walking among the wounded with her lamp. They said it wasn't uncommon for her to work for 22 hours straight, sleep for two hours, and get up and start it all over again. What's amazing is there's a, church, there's a museum in Alabama that has over 40 of her letters that give us insight as to what it was like as a nurse working with these wounded and the things she did to train the other nurses. And In January of 2020, just a little over a year ago, they discovered two more letters that Florence had written and were added to the museum there in Alabama. One in particular caught the eye of many people because she was writing to a young man and she was talking about her relationship with her Heavenly Father but also her relationship with the church. And here's what Florence had to say. She said, I would have given her the church, my head, my hand, and my heart. She wouldn't have them. She did not know what to do with them. She told me to go back and do crochet in my mother's drawing room. Or if I was tired of that, to marry and look well at the head of my husband's table. You may go to Sunday school if you like it, she said. But she gave me no training even for that. And she gave me neither work to do for her nor education for it. Church, I don't want us to make the same mistake. I don't want us to overlook the next Florence. I don't want us to overlook or overshadow the next Clara Babcock or Sarah Lou Bostig. Let's pray together. Father, these are difficult times and difficult conversations I just pray, as Ryan says, that we truly can look at Scripture and Lord, just open our eyes as to what women were doing in Scripture. Lord, help us to gain understanding as to how we hold things together as a congregation while also moving forward to become the church you want us to be. Lord, may we do all we can to prize and value and utilize our girls and our women in a way that brings glory to you, that challenges the church, and serves as a light into our community. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we.